Welcome to the Take Good Care podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Bradshaw. No one wants to become highly skilled at navigating a medical crisis by actually navigating their own medical crises. But I'm here for it. I'm here to help you avoid the learn-as-you-go education in healthcare that I've experienced throughout my own healthcare journey. And I'm also here to facilitate inspiration with guests who get you. We get you. And we're here to build community. So let's get started. Welcome back to the Take Good Care podcast. I heard something the other day that said, 90% of podcasts don't make it to episode four. And of the 10% that do, 90% of those podcasts don't make it past episode 20. So they don't make it to episode 21. (laughs) We're in good shape. We're on episode six. We're going strong. And I marked in my calendar, I believe it's in early September, when this podcast will reach episode 21. We'll have to have some kind of celebration. We're on the right track, as I said. My guest today, wow, do I have a guest for you, Kevin Kirksey. He's the author of a book titled Life 2.0, A Journey from Near Death to New Life. The part I want to point out before Kevin comes on is that if Kevin hadn't felt comfortable or felt trust in his physician to ask him one specific question as he was literally leaving the doctor's office during a routine appointment, if his doctor hadn't been willing to listen, hadn't responded to his request, if Kevin hadn't had the confidence or if he'd felt any insecurity or reluctance like we sometimes do in a doctor's office, he might not be here today. And if he were still alive today, there's a good chance he wouldn't be alive for long. So the lesson partly in this story, there are many lessons weaved within his story, is that we have to use our voice in our doctor's appointment. When we have a question that is life-changing for us, when we don't even realize it, but there's something that's nagging at us, something that's making us feel like we need to ask a question, ask the question. If you learn anything from Kevin's story today, it's to ask the question. No matter what it is, ask the question. Let's start from the beginning. Um, you have a really remarkable medical story that's turned into like a life story. It's it's changed the whole direction of your life. But let's talk about how you weren't feeling sick, you weren't having symptoms, you weren't ignoring anything. Uh, you had gone to see your doctor and in passing mentioned or ask him a question. Tell us about that day and what led up to it and, and what happened. Yeah, it was just a, a routine day to go uh, to see my doctor once a year. I wouldn't say that I really took my health in my own hands. I certainly do now, but, and I'm leaving that, I'm leaving that appointment. And right when I get to the door, I stop and I turn and I ask, I ask the, the doctor a question. I, he was my doctor for probably 15 years at that point in time. So I said, hey doc, I got a question for you. Is there something we should check on the inside of my body? I, kn- I know that sounds strange. I know it sounds weird because I feel great. I'm just curious. He thought about it, and he said, yeah, maybe you should go do a coronary calcium scan, which is, I said, what is that? And he said, oh, it's pretty easy. You lay down, it takes pictures for 10 minutes, and off you go, and it gives you a score. If you score zero, you're good to go. Everything's fine. If you score something greater than zero, then maybe we have to do some more testing. And so I, I, I left his office 
uh, I walked past radiology on the way out to my car and I stopped in there and said, hey, is this where you do these these tests? And they said, yes. They got my name and they said, I see you You need to take one of these. We can take you right now. Would you like to do it? And I said, no, I'm too busy. I've, I've got to get back to work. They said, well, how about Monday? This was on a Friday. And I said, sure. And I said, sure, kind of flippantly just to get out of the situation. I really wasn't that serious about going back there and taking that test. So that's how this all started. How do you know why your doctor, was it your age? Was it just, why would, why was that something that came to his mind? Is that a conversation you ever had? No, we, we, we really didn't. Um, there was a tiny bit of, um, uh, a cardiac disease in my family. Uh, my father had had a, a mild heart attack when he was in his mid fifties. And I don't even know if my doctor knew that at that point in time, but that's really the history that we had. I, I was a little overweight. I was very busy in my career, lots of traveling, probably wasn't taking the greatest care of myself. And so, you know, he just really, I think, wanted to an answer that question and, and, and address something that might be a good logical thing to go do. But it was not based upon any concern that he had or that I had had. You might have had a different provider who might not have made that suggestion. So that's exactly right. And yeah, uh, so that that question that just kind of rolled out of my mouth, uh, you know, it really proved to me that uh, it's a question that saved my life. Ultimately, it's also a question to me that, in my opinion, proved to me that divine intervention is very real. That was my first um, experience with that. Because that question didn't come from you. No, I had not been thinking about this. I wasn't thinking about it going to the doctor's office. I wasn't thinking about it when I was there. It was right before I got to the door to leave. It just rolled out of my mouth. So let's talk about then the scan. So you're in, you're there. They say, we can see you right now. You say, no, thanks. And then when they offered Monday to you, you say, okay, sure. Did you plan on going on Monday or you just- No, at that time, no. Over the weekend, I, I told myself, well, maybe I should go because I had to get on an airplane and go to California right after that appointment. So I went up and I did the test. On the same day? Uh, yeah, the same day. So I literally went to the, the um, doctor's office. They did the, the test. You know, he told me it was going to be a 10-minute test. In my case, it was like 30 minutes. So I was a little bit annoyed with that. But I get on the plane. I go to California. And just right after I had landed, I got a call that same day. And I, I sent it to voicemail because I thought it was just the doctor's office calling me to tell me the good news about my test result. About 10 minutes later, they called again. Five minutes later, they called again. And I said, okay, somebody's trying to reach me. So I called back, got a hold of uh, the, the nurse. And I said, her name is Kathy. And I said, Kathy, somebody's trying to reach me. She goes, yeah, Kevin, it was me. She said, the results were not good. And I said, well, what does that mean? She goes, it means that it's the worst the doctor's ever seen. And I go, Wow. Okay, what does that mean? She said, Kevin, I'm sorry. It means you are at an extreme risk of a cardiac event or a stroke at any moment. I was 2,500 miles away from my home and heard that my very next step could be my last. And so I said, what, what do I do? And she said, we've got a, an appointment with a cardiologist. You need to see him today. And I said, I'm in California. What do I do? She hesitates. And then she said, can you please remain calm and come home? immediately, which I, which I did. And that's where the story really began to unfold. Could you remain calm? Um, I've never been told by a medical professional that my next step could be my last. I didn't know what to think. I think I was in a state of shock. I was in a state of disbelief. I was in a state of denial. 
but I, I had this incredibly nervous anxiety that I did need to attend to this in, right away. Something told me, you got to move as fast as you can. And so I got back to Dallas and I went and saw the, the, the doctors the next day. They did um, a bunch of tests and they came to a conclusion that my only chance of survival was to have a, an open heart cardiac bypass surgery right, right away. That's what I ultimately did. We didn't talk about what were the results. What is not so good or the worst he'd ever seen? What does that mean? What did it well, mean? I had remembered that they said the results was going to be a new numerical score. Zero is what you want, and 400 is actually the upper end of the scale. That's what you don't That's broad. That's broad. And so I was on the plane using the Wi-Fi. My wife was using uh, the Internet. We were communicating back and forth about this particular test, and we, we saw that the scale goes from zero to 400, and everywhere along that spectrum that has a different meaning. So I didn't know what my score was. The very next morning when I was on the way to cardiologist, I called the nurse and I said, hey, in the shuffle things, I didn't think to ask what my score was. Well, it wasn't zero, obviously, and it wasn't 400. It was 6,518. It was so far off the chart, I about wrecked my car. And she said, Kevin, she said they... The technician couldn't believe it either. She ran the test three consecutive times on you. And that explained to me why it was 30 minutes and not 10. And she said they had calibrated the machine just the day before. That's what your score was. So it's, I, you know. And you were annoyed that it took three times as long. But that, I was annoyed, but I didn't know what was what she was actually doing when she was taking that, doing the test on me. And so, you know, I kind of I kind of laugh now that it's all over. I'm I'm, I'm living a very new Right. wonderful, inspired life. But I, I kind of laugh now and say, you know, growing up as a, as a little boy, I, I thought maybe I wanted to set records with throwing touchdowns or or shooting basketballs. I didn't know that I was going to be aspiring to sell the, one of the records in the calcium scan area. And I understand it's not the highest that's ever been produced, but it's pretty high up there. Well, and I would think too, it's a blessing you didn't know that number. How could you have remained calm if you'd known that number? Couldn't. Couldn't. Could have. So good on her for not telling if you didn't ask. Yeah. <laughs> Just on her. Right. So right you right. find out that you have severe cardiac disease. You need yes. bypass surgery. Yes. And it happens within a couple of days. Right. I want to know what those couple of days were like for you. Were you already starting? Because you made some big life changes after this. I think that when we yeah. have these wake-up calls, right. we're supposed to wake up. Right. Or, or something will come knocking again. Right. Right. And we're supposed to wake up to the possibilities of our lives, how we can impact others. What is our gift? Why are we here? So did that start immediately for you? Or was there just kind of overwhelm and just trying to process? And also maybe some fear. This is a very serious surgery. You're not in great shape to go go into it. Were you scared? I was extremely scared because the day that that day that I found out the results was the day I was going to do the additional test to find out what was actually wrong with me. I remember the 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 doctor saying that we need to have you do a, a heart catheterization, and he said uh, this was late late in the afternoon. He said we'll do it first thing in the morning, and I said uh, I said okay. He goes are you are you feeling okay? And I said yeah I feel great. Why? And he goes no really are you feeling okay? I said, yeah, I'm feeling great. I said, why do you ask? He said, well, can you remain calm and go home and get some rest and then be up to at the hospital tomorrow morning? So another another area of asking me to remain calm. Uh, I was not calm. 
I was scared out of my wits. And the only thing I could think to do, Lisa, was to try to take some inventory on my life. I had never felt like I had to come to terms with my mortality, mm-hmm. but I literally forced myself to say, okay, you could, you could die very, very soon from now. So prepare for that. Get yourself mentally and emotionally, get yourself right with God. Do what you can to get yourself prepared for that. That took me about two days and I was able, able to do that. And that just probably the biggest blessing right before I was being wheeled into to surgery. But I had, I was struggling to learn what is it like? What am I going to go through? What am I going to experience? Is it going to hurt? Is it, what, what is this whole experience that I'm, I'm embarking upon? Did they tell you that if, you know, the surgery was going to fix everything, uh, if, if it was successful, what were they saying was your prognosis after surgery? The, the, the prognosis is that it would buy more time in life. It was not, there's no, Whenever you do this, there's no guarantees on what that means. It just means that we are going to bypass the areas that are clogged up. And I had one of my major arteries was literally 100% included. There was no blood flow going through it whatsoever. And that's another thing we ask is why, why is that the case? Why am I alive if my heart wasn't getting any blood? And they described to me that the heart muscle is the only muscle in the body that can actually form uh, vessels. To, to go around blocked areas. And so they said, that's probably what happened to you over the years and you were in trouble. You didn't know it and it started growing these vessels. So yeah, I, you know, I, and then the other thing too, I was a little bit, um, uh, panicked because, you know, I was thinking more about my wife than I was thinking about myself. Uh, how, is she, is she, is she prepared for me to pass? Is she going to be okay? And I mean, little things like she doesn't really know how to fix the computer. I'm the IT guy in the family. What? How's she going to do that? I mean, I was just really struggling with this whole thing. And again, most of my anxiety was about her and and my, my family, and, and less about me. Once I once I came to grips with my mortality, uh, that was that was where my focus was. Once you came out of the surgery, not just physically, but how did you feel? Did you feel like this was a wake-up call that you could answer. Uh, what was your thought process about steps moving forward from this lesson you've learned in just rapid yeah. speed? Absolutely. Well, when I first woke up in the hospital, I do remember being reasonably happy that I'm alive, reasonably happy that I can look around and see people and hear things. So number one, that was... that was Just waking up from surgery. That's one. Just waking up from surgery. Boy, I feel like I accomplished something. Uh-huh. Um in terms of my outlook and what I was going to be able to do with this, I was just incredibly confused. I had no idea. My mind was just a blank. Um, and then I, um, and I, and I talked to other uh, patients who go through this about this because I, I, depression is, is very foreign to me. I, I really can't say that I've had any form of depression in my life, but I fell into I'd say maybe beginning about two weeks after I had come home from the hospital, I started getting depressed because I kept thinking of myself as a broken man. I kept thinking to myself, they told me I'm a plaque maker. That's what I do really well. I make plaque and plaque is not something that you want. And so um, I, I, I kind of fell into depression and you know, I, did, I didn't know what to do with it. Um, 
And so I started just thinking about my experience in the hospital and thinking about all of the little things that all of the people, clinical and non-clinical, did for me, little things. And I've actually documented over 120 such things that I experienced. And they were- Well, good for you. Yeah, I'll give you just a, a couple of examples. I mean, uh, the a nurse at night in ICU would have to check my blood sugars every hour on the hour. And so I wasn't really getting any sleep. And every time I saw her coming, I'm thinking, great, I'm going to try to figure out a way for her to give me more morphine because I was in pain. One day she comes in and she goes, what do you think the test result of your blood sugar is going to be? And I go, I don't know, 120. And she goes, well, I think it's going to be 115. Well, she was right and she won that one. And so that started this game. And so every time I saw her, we would play this game. And I had completely forgot about the morphine. Don's on me a few months later. What this young lady was doing was getting my mind off of the pain and onto something else. And God bless her for that. She didn't have to do that. She did that for my benefit. And so there was countless little examples of these types of things. And it started to occur to me that, you know, um, you know, it, 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 these people, they put their lives on hold for the lives, for the likes of people like me. Right. And they, and they give and they give and they give and they give until and they never, ever, ever ask for anything in return. And so as I started to contemplate that, I, I, I was wondering if maybe maybe I could perhaps think about living a life that was no longer focused on me. Because growing up, it was all about my career, my education, my et cetera. Rather than focusing on me, maybe I can it's possible to live a life based upon their example. And their example of giving and not asking for anything in return. And so one thing led to the other. And I concluded this. I said, I do not want to be one of those patients that recovers from this. They go home, they recover, they go about life, and they're never heard from again. I want to prove to healthcare that they matter. They make a difference. They impact lives. And so the way I, I, the way I did that is I started eating right. I started exercising a cardio workout twice a day made sure I was taking my medications, uh, made sure I took time to de-stress if I was stressed from work. And I think the most important thing that I realized is what these healthcare providers and caregivers were really doing is they were affirming my value, my relevance, and my importance as not a patient, but as a human being. When I thought about that, I said, you know, maybe I could do that too in my life. And so I put a calendar event it's in my calendar today at 6.30 in the morning, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It says, live or die, question mark. Make the choice. And if I choose to live, which I've been doing every day, right. I never chose to die, but if I choose to live, it tells me I've got to do all the basics. I've got to exercise, eat right, et cetera, et cetera. But I need to affirm the value and the relevance and importance of another human being before I can go to bed at night. And because... And I started living this life. I call it life 2.0. And, and to me, you know, it's a life I never imagined possible. I didn't realize the impact if you really put yourself in a position of trying to affirm others' value and relevance importance. You get, I mean, the, the, watching them come alive. It's, it's, it's a form of love that we all can give. And so when I see that happening, I, I tell you, it's one of the best feelings I've ever, ever had in my life. And so... That's why I call it life 2.0. It was some, something I wasn't doing before I had the surgery. One of the things that I hear from you what, when you're talking about this, you're showing up for yourself every day. 
but your compliance, your practice of compliance is also out of respect for the people who got you to where you are now. That's right. That's right. That's right. I, I wanted, I wanted them to know, and, I, and this is for all healthcare workers. This is not just that where I had my, my care, because I do a lot of speaking around the country. I have written articles and have them published on this subject, et cetera. But my, my big thing is I want healthcare providers, caregivers, both clinical and non-clinical, even the, you know, the people that are in admissions, the people that do the valet service at a hospital, for example, I want them to know that as patients, we move on, we move forward, but we never, ever forget. And they're never left behind in our prayer. And I, I found that by continuing to do this service mission of giving back in this way, it's making an impact on others, which just like they made an impact on me. You talk about the parking lot attendant. I remember I became buddies with with the the person I paid and gave my ticket when my mom was ill, and I saw him there all the time. And one time I was leaving, I said, "I, I want to pay for the the three people behind me." And today we found out my mom's gonna live. You know, she's gonna be oh, okay. fantastic. Wow. Uh, I said, as long as you tell the people behind me, the next three people, make sure, please, you tell them that my mom, you know, survived. And we got a second opinion that saved her life and to never give up hope. And we were both like crying in the car. get choked up now. And he said, I absolutely will. And when I came back the next day, he said, hey, everyone just kept paying the people behind them. Like this whole thing, nobody wanted to take your money. They would just give it to the next person behind them. It went on for like however many cars, he said, the next day. And. I think that that man who was so cheerful every time I'd come in and out with so much stress, I wanted to share with him, and he just became a, a friendly face. That made so how did, how did you feel about how the giving went to giving and went to giving? Uh, you know, you give in one space, you give you give once, and you think, that's I'm just so grateful I can do that. And then to know that that's reciprocated in the ripple effect, that's what life is. It's that ripple effect that we get to give, uh, and we have a choice in that. Kevin... When you talk about wanting to make sure that your wife was okay and and feeling, you know, really not as worried about yourself anymore because you've gotten everything right, preparing yourself for this. I have been a patient and I've been a caregiver. And I think sometimes being the caregiver was harder because I wanted to fix Wesley. I wanted to help Wesley. I wanted to fix my mom. I wanted to help my mom. And when I was going through it, I I knew kind of I knew where I was at with everything. I knew that I, that I had been having those conversations with God or that I was going to be compliant and do everything that was expected of me. But as the caregiver, you feel really helpless. Where do I fit in here and how can I be of help? And in what way did you feel supported by her in those days? And how were you able to make that connection with each other to get each other through it? Because now you're in, you're the for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. You're in it now. What does that look like for you as a couple? That's a, a really um, profoundly personal and great question. We uh, we visited it often, and uh, I could tell that she was trying to hide her emotions, her fear from me. She went into a mode where she was supportive of me, where I was trying to go in the same mode, being supportive of her. So I really didn't know how profoundly deep her fear was until I wrote my book. When I got the first set of books that I had written from the publisher, that was a very exciting. I opened it up and my gosh, there's a book. And 
I took it down to the, down to the hall into my, where my wife, uh, it, she has an office there. And I said, this is for you. You get the very, very first one. And she set it on the credenza behind her desk. It was a few years ago. It's still on that credenza behind her desk in the same spot. She's the only person that, I, that I'm aware of that has received that book that actually has not read it. I asked her about that, and I said, "Hey, I'm hearing it's an easy read. I'm hearing people like it. Are you gonna Are you gonna read it?" She goes, "Yes, I'm. I'm gonna read it one day. Uh, I just don't want to go back to that very dark place that I was in when all this was happening." My mom has never read either of my books. Is that right? Probably for the same reason. Yeah. You know, my first book was based on my cancer experience from the journal I kept during that time, and. I was 24 and we faced the risk of infertility and I couldn't find books written by anyone close to my age, newly married, all of those things. And she didn't read that one. My dad did. And my dad has written a chapter for each of my books, for both of my books, from his point of view and his role in our family through my illness. And then my second book, Big Shoes, is based on my late husband Wesley's year-long illness and then the seven years after. My dad wrote a chapter for that book as well, but he didn't want to read it. He didn't want to read that book because Wesley died. And that was very different than my book of going through cancer and surviving it. And what I said to him was, you know, mom's off the hook because she didn't read the first one, but you can't not walk this with me. I, I need you to read it and know things you would never know without reading it. You, you need to you need to read the book. And he did. And when you write it all down, as much as people think they know you or know your story and the details, it's a beautiful thing when people can see closer, have a closer look inside of your experience than they ever would if you didn't take the time to write it down word by word by word like you did and, and like I did. In what way did the book have a healing effect on you? We know it helped others, but how did it help heal you? As I know that if I'm writing something or maybe the book is helpful to others, that's where that's where I get the value. That's where I get the help. I can't tell you I've heard stories of people that I don't even know that have gotten feedback, found my wife on Facebook or something and given us feedback that one example was a, a lady who was trying to get her husband to go get checked out. They... She read my story, convinced him to go to the cardiologist. He had the exact same thing I had. Wow. And he survived a five-way bypass at the University of Maryland and, and was survived. And so I wasn't used to, I didn't know how to deal with this feeling that something that a journey that I went through is actually helping somebody else. And it's quite, quite impactful to me. What message do you have for people who are listening to this, who are in the thick of it? just really in the thick of it, whether it's treatment, recovering from surgery, facing a really difficult diagnosis, the caregiver of someone who's going through it, what is your message to the person who could have the opportunity and, and actually just make the decision to put something in their calendar for tomorrow morning that would change the course of their whole day and in your case could change the course of their whole lives? Great question. I, I, I think from my own experience, and I hope others can relate to this, I, I think that when you're at a point where you're at your heightened sense of vulnerability, anxiety, fear, 
despair that if there's a way, if there's a way to just take an accounting of what's important in your life, that could be family, it could be friends, it could be God, and spend your focus there and not spend your focus elsewhere. Because I believe that there's power in giving. And if I'm thinking about somebody else, that's a form of giving. And I think that's a lesson that we are all asked to do in this, in this life, at least from my perspective. And I know it's incredibly hard. I know it's so easy to think about, I have this, why did this happen to me? It always happens to the other person. It's happening to me. I don't get it. Is my life going to be cut short? Am I going to live another day? None of us have, no matter what our health situation is, none of us have any guarantees about life beyond this moment. We just don't. And so my lesson to myself was turn it all external to the world around you to the extent that you can. It became very, very hard work, but now it's become second nature. It's become something that I, I, I delight. You know, the, the time I've had since surgery was far more impactful to me than the 57 years prior to it. And right before they, they wheeled me away, my wife was on one side, my son was on the other side, came to get me, I gave them both a hug, I told them both that I loved them, and I'll see you soon. As soon as I left, I started tearing up because I thought maybe I had lied to them, that I wasn't sure I would see them soon, but that's what I told them. I was close to being panicked as I ever have been in my life because they're wheeling me. I know where I'm going. I know what's going to happen. And I, I just thought to myself, all I can do is say a prayer. My prayer went like this, dear God, I've come to terms with my mortality. My precious wife is not ready for my passing, but please take me today if it is your will to do so. And if I am to survive, I'd like to ask you for your help in me achieving a bucket list of the three most essential items in my life. One, I'd like to dance with my wife again. Two, I'd like to hold her hand and take a walk. And three, I'd like to meet and get to know my unborn grandchild. Thank you for the life you've given me so far. I give myself entirely and completely up to you. At that moment, this has never happened to me before in my life. At that moment, I describe it as a waterfall of prayer that was coming over me. And so I'm now in the operating room and they're wheeling me to wherever I need to get on the, on the table. But I'm, I'm, I'm grasping, what is this feeling going on? And it occurred to me in that moment, at a number of people that worked with me and the company I was with at the time, they said, you know, Kevin, we're going to get together as a group and we're going to pray for you about the time your surgery begins. And I felt their prayer and I experienced God answering mine. And so if there's an element of prayer in anybody's life that's helpful, I would encourage you to do what you can in that area. It's really remarkable. I mean, I, I, I don't really have words. <laughs> so rare that I don't have words. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I feel like you today are a great teacher. You know, I, I have this little bit of time with you. And I feel like I've been taught many lessons in a short amount of time. And that's the opportunity we have with anyone we encounter. 
I thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for um, being one of the first guests on the Take Good Care podcast. Uh, thank and you. it makes me excited for what's to come. Awesome. Absolutely. And one last thing, make sure you use your calendars wisely. They're very powerful. They'll help you. I'm going to put a note to myself in my calendar, thanks to you. <laughs> thank you so much. Take good care. Oh, 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 oh